Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Thank you and good afternoon everyone and welcome to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute's Insider Briefing Call. I'm Eileen Schumann, co-chair of the Workplace Policy Institute. After more than five years, the Department of Labor issued a final rule to redefine who is a, quote, fiduciary investment advisor of an employment benefit plan under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA. This new definition and its associated regulatory package has broad implications for plan sponsors, financial institutions, advisors, and other stakeholders. Joining me here today to dissect the new rule are Littler shareholders and co-chairs of Littler's Employee Benefits Practice Group, Melissa Kurtzman from Philadelphia, and Steve Friedman from New York. Thank you both for joining us today. First, I'm going to ask you, sure, I'm going to turn to you, Steve. The final rule replaces 1975 regulations on fiduciary investment advice with the definition that, according to the Department of Labor, quote, better reflects the broad scope of the statutory text and its purposes and better protects plans, participants, beneficiaries, and IRA owners from conflicts of interest, imprudence, and disloyalty. Steve, what was the old standard enunciated in the 1974 regulations, and why were there calls to change it recently? Well, when we go back to 1974, when ERISA was enacted, there were no 401k plans, and essentially most plans were composed of uh, funds that employers were managing. Employers were managing the money in their plans and not plan participants. And today, that situation has completely changed. So, you know, ERISA at that point defined plan investment fiduciaries as those rendering investment advice for a fee. It was a fairly straightforward analysis of who would be a fiduciary. And regulations were issued um, after the year that ERISA was enacted in 1975 to provide for a five-part test, and you had to meet all five parts in order to become uh, or, or be acknowledged to be a plan fiduciary. And uh, we can go through that five-part test, but basically the idea was that um, uh, if th- today there's going to be a, a need for more people to be, at least in the Department of Labor's view, to be thought of as fiduciaries. Under the five-part test, a person is considered a fiduciary with respect to investment advice if the person, one, makes recommendations on investing in purchasing or selling securities or other property or gives advice as to their value. Two, does this on a regular basis. Three, pursuant to a, misunderst- a mutual understanding. And four, with the understanding that the advice will serve as the primary basis for investment decisions. So someone making ancillary, um, uh, you know, doing things that that would be viewed in an ancillary manner would not be a fiduciary. And then five, the advice is individualized as the particular needs of the plan. As I had mentioned, all five parts must be satisfied each instance that advice is provided. 
But now the DOL sees an investment landscape where it is not employers who are managing plan accounts in a defined benefit plan. Instead, the participants themselves are charged with managing and making investment decisions about where to put their 401k monies, and it is the employer who's providing them with the options. So there were several reasons given by the government as to why the standard had to change. The DOL expressly stated that under the current rules, there were possible hidden fees that were called backdoor payments, as well as conflicts of interest, which participants were not aware of, that could add up to significant amounts and adversely affect and materially impact, in the department's view, retirement savings. There was also a concern about conflicted investment advice where individuals could claim non-fiduciary status on account of not meeting all five parts of the test, even though plan sponsors may have, in fact, been relying upon their information in deciding which investments should be offered to plan participants. So the government really wanted to make sure that employers would make the best informed decisions and that investment choices would be prudent and that fees would be reasonable and more transparent. That's really the reason for the new rule. So, Steve, what is this new definition of fiduciary investment advice? Well, the new definition now looks at investment advice as any recommendation that's made to either a plan, a plan fiduciary, or a plan participant or beneficiary, as well as an IRA owner for a fee or for other compensation that can be made directly or indirectly to the individual offering the advice. And the advice would be as to, you know, what's advisable with respect to buying, holding, selling, exchanging, or managing securities or other investment property. So it's a very broad standard. And this, by the way, includes rollovers from a plan to another plan or from a plan to an IRA. And it also includes recommendations as to the investment policies and strategies, as well as portfolio composition and selection of people to provide investment advice. So it is a much broader standard. And so the threshold question that gets asked by uh, someone who's looking at the rule, what is a recommendation? Uh, Because that's what's key now. And a recommendation would be a communication that based on its content, context and presentation would reasonably be viewed as a suggestion that the advice recipient engage in or refrain from taking a particular course of action. And the more individually tailored that advice is, or that it communications is, is more likely to be a recommendation. And people who make recommendations in exchange for fear compensation will be considered a fiduciary if one of three things happens. Number one, that they acknowledge that they're acting as a fiduciary. So a plan sponsor can always ask a service provider to accept a role as a plan fiduciary. Number two would be if they render advice pursuant to a written or verbal agreement, arrangement, or understanding that the advice is based upon the particular investment needs of the recipient. Or three, if they direct the advice to specific recipients, which would mean a group of people, regarding the advisability of a particular investment or management decision. So there doesn't necessarily have to be any agreement if you direct the advice to a 
uh, specific recipients and it regards the advisability of particular investments, then, then you're a fiduciary under the new rules. And, and Steve, on the flip side, um, the final rule does include some examples of communications that do not constitute fiduciary investment advice. Um, what are some examples of these exceptions of communications that would not rise to the level of a recommendation and be fiduciary investment advice? Yes, the, the Department of Labor was helpful in specifying certain things that are not going to be uh, fiduciary advice. One would be if you're a platform, platform provider. That is that if you market or make it available an investment platform from which a planned fiduciary or planned participants may select or monitor investment alternatives. So if you say, we have a whole array of funds and you can choose this platform or you can choose a different array that we have, that's not being a fiduciary. Now that's different from providing a, a selective list of securities to a recipient. So it, it's very tricky. If you're providing a list of securities and saying, these are the securities we recommend, take any securities off this list, you may be a fiduciary. If it's an entire investment platform, which is much broader, then, then you're not likely to be a fiduciary. Um, and then there's a couple of other things that uh, aren't investment advice, and that's selection and monitoring assistance with respect to a platform. Um, and so you must disclose in writing whether a person has a financial interest in any of the identified investment alternatives. That's something that, that you must do. Um, but generally, that won't be investment advice. And then also communications are not investment advice, nor is investment education. So you can still communicate. In fact, it's very much encouraged that uh, that those dealing with plan assets and um, and education and the the whole fiduciary process from a plan and from from an employer standpoint do communicate to uh, participants about investments. Um, and, and investment education and communications per se will not be investment advice. And, and the rule details that investment education is essentially plan information or general financial investment and retirement information. And it can include things like asset allocation models, which are based upon accepted investment theories. So you can say that, you know, generally if, um, if, if you have a, a, a risk-averse type of investment uh, mindset, and you're a certain age, you put it into a computer and, and, and outspits uh, some, some investment uh, models for you, where you put certain amounts into fixed income, certain amounts into bonds, certain amounts into certain types of stocks, that's not um, fiduciary um, uh, practice. And then you can also have some interactive investment materials, such as software, questionnaires, and other types of materials that provides means to estimate their future needs. So, you know, those are some things that, that aren't uh, fiduciary practices. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Steve. And now turning to you, Melissa. Under ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code, individuals providing fiduciary investment advice to plan sponsors, plan participants, and IRA owners are not permitted to receive payments creating conflicts of interest without a prohibited transaction exemption. DOL's regulatory package also included a new 
best interest contract exemption. What exactly is this? Uh, also known as BIC or BICE out there. Uh, the best interest contract exemption is the Department of Labor's way of, ex of increasing um, the, the uh, in changing the suitability standard, which was out there before, to a fiduciary standard for many broker-dealers and investment advisors to small plans. The Department of Labor was worried that small plans, and the, the word small to the Department of Labor and to the financial industry means under $50 million in assets for an ERISA plan and IRAs uh, in the IRA context. Um, what this exemption does is still make sure that plan sponsors and IRA providers are, are an IRA uh, fiduciaries are giving uh, education and giving great advice by their brokers without the brokers walking away from giving the advice. So with this exemption, it, the Department of Labor is hoping that small plans will still get the needed advice they need. And that's what we're going to really focus on in this call is small ERISA plans, those under 50 million. Now, large plans, those 50 million or more, uh, generally do not have to have the BICE exemption. The issue there is that large plan sponsors are deemed to be uh, financially astute. And so they would have the wherewithal to know what investments to have under their plan. But if the actual advisor knows or has reason to believe that the large plan sponsor also does not have the requisite experience to make certain decisions, this uh, best interest contract exemption may be available for them as well. But basically, in order to have uh, no prohibited transaction for these uh, broker-dealers, they must meet many exemptions. And here I'll go through the first one. Number one, they have to have a contract with the IRA recipient. Now, with a plan sponsor, there is no contract requirement because under ERISA, there are other uh, uh, areas and other benefits that the plan sponsor can use rather than having a contract. But best practice is to have a contract with your investment advisor, even if you're in the ERISA plan context. Number two, the individual, the financial institution and the financial advisor, both of them, must acknowledge their fiduciary status. So it's not just one, it's both, both the advisor and the financial institution. The financial institution, as part of this, would also notify the Department of Labor that it is using the best interest contract. So in order for the advisor of, those, of the, uh, of the um, financial institution to use the best interest contract, the Department of Labor must know that the financial institution is a, is a fiduciary status and using the best interest contract exemption. They must use and be subject to an impartial conduct standard, and this is where the best interest comes into play. They must operate as a duty of loyalty to their customers, to the plan sponsors and to IRA 
owners. They must operate in choosing and selecting and recommending investments to their clients under best standards, only in the best interest of participants and their clients. That is a sea change. And so many, company, many companies use commissions, 12B1 fees, uh, back-end loads, front-end loads, and in order to still use that commission-based practice, you must operate in the best interests of participants and plan sponsors and IRA owners. And there cannot be a materially misleading statements in recommending any of the investments under the plan. In addition, the compensation must be reasonable. It cannot be excessive. And the actual advisor and financial institution makes that decision on whether their compensation is reasonable and not excessive. There is no rule in this uh, guidance that has the plan sponsor, which is interesting to note, uh, be a second fiduciary to determine if the compensation is reasonable. So it's a very high standard for the institution and the advisor to meet and to explain that their compensation is reasonable. They need to be looking at the market to determine if the compensation is reasonable. They also have to provide a warranty and that they will not violate state and local and federal laws. And, there must, and they must tell the plan sponsor and IRA owners that there are no, that any material conflicts of interest are identified. There must be a website to talk about fees. There must be all types of policies and procedures outlined for these individuals to have the best interest contract exemption. It's pretty onerous, and it's actually been cut back a lot since the proposed regulations. But what we think is going to happen is it's going to drive out some of the one-and-done, what I call one-and-only types of advisors that only handle one or two IRAs or one or two 401k plans. And those that are in the industry will get stronger. I think there's going to be a lot of mergers. And I think at the end of the day, there's going to be more flat fees, flat dollar amounts or flat percentages to be able to rely on um, these, this exemption. So I, I really think in the next few years, there's going to be a lot more transparency, and I think the costs will go down for investments in 401k-type plans because of this exemption. So, Melissa, what should plan sponsors, why should they care about this new fiduciary rule? Well, because plan sponsors are a fiduciary to the plan, and as a plan sponsor, they have co-fiduciary duty. Always had the responsibility to select the appropriate investment advisors for their plans, and to monitor these investment advisors. So these new rules, I expect you, the investment advisor will be providing new contracts to you as plan sponsors, and I think also a lot of the platform providers. If you as a plan sponsor are with a platform provider, they're going to, you know, I, I've talked to a few lately, they may, you know, some may head into the fiduciary realm rather than be a non-fiduciary because they, 
being a non-fiduciary, you have to uh, say you're not a fiduciary and you have a conflict of interest. So I, I think plan sponsors uh, are, are going to be very involved with this new rule, but I think it's going to be good for plan sponsors. They're going to get a lot more information than they've ever had uh, to make prudent decisions for their plan participants. And I think another welcome uh, uh, plan sponsors are always worried about educating their employees. Is too much education bad? I've always been asked about that. Now I think with this guidance, it clearly tells plan sponsors that, you know, even employees, as long as they're not getting extra compensation uh, for educating or explaining how the plan works to their employees, gives greater relief for plan sponsors to give more education to plan participants. So I, I think these rules are, are really great for plan sponsors. So what should plan sponsors be doing to prepare for implementation of the new fiduciary rule when it becomes effective in 20, um, well, uh, partially effective in 2017 and 2018? There's several things I least say should be doing. Number one, I, I advise all of you plan sponsors, if you haven't done it already, go on the Department of Labor website and subscribe to their newsletters and fiduciary webinars. I think it's always good to know labor is thinking and what they're ruling about. And they will also be having many local seminars and webinars. That's number one. Number two, I advise all plan sponsors to get all their contracts in order with all their vendors. If they do not receive any new contracts in the next six months or th from any of their investment advisors, I would call them up and ask for them because it, it, you should be getting new documents. I would look at your charters. I look at your investment policies, all your contracts, and, and really review them, get them in order, and make sure you're, you're doing really good prudence and monitoring all your service providers. Uh, I think it, you want to get an understanding if your investment advisors are fiduciaries and what are they doing to comply if you're a small plan with the best interest conflict uh, exemption. Uh, how, what is their compensation? Do you understand everything that they're telling you? And if you don't ask, it would be rare, as I said, not to be getting new contracts. Um, I would have your contracts reviewed by your legal advisors to make sure they comply and to make sure uh, every, you know, with all the latest fee litigation, and frankly, there's a new case out there now, even in the small plan market, um, looking at excessive fees. So, you know, you want to make sure you are are paying reasonable compensation since that's you, you need to find out and make sure your participants are paying no more than reasonable compensation. Also, ask your advisor if they're a fiduciary or not. It's amazing to me how many uh, investment advisors do not explain whether or not they're a fiduciary to a plan sponsors. That's a real important first question to ask. And Littler is, is in the process of now putting together a fiduciary toolkit to assist plan sponsors. This will be devised of uh, minutes, 
charters, investment policies, all our guidance that we've learned from Department of Labor uh, audits that are constantly going on now, uh, also based on the last 5,500s that you have. The Department of Labor has been gathering data since 2009 based on the 5,500s being online. So there is a lot of information out there to help plan sponsors act prudently and in the best interest of their plan participants. So we're here to help. Um, well, thank you. Um, Melissa and Steve, I want to thank you both so much for participating in today's call and giving us um, some practical advice about what the fiduciary rule um, may mean for you and your organization. Um, so with that, that concludes our call. If you have any questions, uh, please feel free to, um, to reach out to um, Steve or Melissa or myself, and I can put you um, in touch with them. So again, thank you, and uh, have a good day. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.